All right, today I'm with Vineet, and Vineet, I'm not going to attempt to say your last name, uh, but thank you very much for uh, joining. Thank you very much, Joe. I'll say my last name is Mehrotra. That's lovely. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> start just like uh, everybody else. Refresh our memory. What were you doing prior to INSEAD, and what have you been up to for the last 20 years? Okay. Uh, before I came to INSEAD, I was in Argentina for about 10 years. Well, Argentina, South America sort of a thing. I used to work with Tata Motors. So I think if, uh, and, and most of my comments whenever we were there in the class used to be about the automotive industry and this happened in Argentina and that happened in Uruguay, that sort of a thing. So I was there for about 10 years and I worked for Tata Motors uh, before coming to INSEAD for a total of about 12 years. So I think I probably was one of the oldest guys around, actually, uh, who already had. So Tata was like your, your first job out of out of college, university, whatever it is, and they and 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 they sent you to South America for most of your time. Yes, yes. So I when I joined them, I joined their graduate engineering program, and I, I think first two years was complete training, and I thought that I had joined the sales team, but. Uh, I think after one month into the job, I realized that I was in the service department and I had no bloody clue what the service department does. But uh, I obviously raised it up with the HR and raised a big hue and cry about it. And then basically the boss called me and he said, I hear you've got a problem. I said, yeah, because my offer letter says I've joined sales and service. So and I'm doing how to repair a gearbox, how to open an engine sort of a thing. So he said, yeah, what's wrong with that? I said, no, but in sales, you don't do that. You go and sell the truck. So he said, no, my friend, it's a sales and service. You've joined the sales and service department. Nobody gets to sales unless you have done your time in the service department and you know what you are selling. So that was my first job and first encounter of what I had expected and got something else out of a thing. So I did that for about uh, two and a half years in India. I was, uh, so did two years of training, then got posted to north of India for my first posting. And at that point in time, Tata, Inge Tata Motors was called Telco, which was Tata Engineering and Locomotive Company. And they had about 37,000 employees. So somebody told me that there was this warrant that came out, uh, internal ad advert for people who want to get into exports. So once I had seen somebody in my Delhi office, somebody in a suit and all that crap, and I thought the guy looked very, very smart. So I went and asked him, what do you do? He said, I work with Tata Exports. So I think this was my fifth month in the company. And I, I had it in my head, oh, I've got to put a suit on and I've got to be in Tata Exports. So somebody tells me that there's this uh, internal want. So I apply like, I think about 6,000 other people Seven of us finally make, made it through. And then the guy calls me in his office, the head of the exports department saying, oh, well done you, uh, you are going to Argentina. I said, thank you very much. I said, it's America, right? I mean, like <laughs> every other Indian at that point in time, everybody wanted to be in America. And I said, it's uh, America, right? So the guy said, yeah, it's South of America, South America. I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> so then he goes, uh, what do you know about Argentina? It was kind of an impromptu question. And even if I'd prepared for it, I didn't know shit. So mm -hmm. I said, I know Maradona. I know Gabriela Sabatini. And uh, what else? The guy goes, oh, that's good enough. 
Uh, and when I was leaving, just about at the door, like they show in those television shows and everything, the guy, oh, just a second. By the way, they speak Spanish. So I just turned around. I said, what do you mean they speak Spanish? They said, that is the only language they speak. And you'll find very few people speaking English. Is that going to be a problem? I thought if I were to say yes, then I will not get into exports. So I said, no, nah, not a problem at all. I'll, I'll buy a dictionary and all. So that was the first thing I did coming out of that office, go and buy English to Spanish dictionary. And I was on my way to Argentina. So That's I was... So, yeah, to tell, what was Argentina like? Oh, bloody hell. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, for me, even till date, I think I find Buenos Aires to be my choicest of places to be in ever. And uh, I was in Argentina for about a year. And then I was living out of a suitcase for about two years because in my first year, I kind of picked up on Spanish. I mean, those were the days when the presentations were done on transparencies on the overhead projector. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had prepared basically about 100 slides of how to open an engine and how to close a gearbox and those sort of things. Interesting stuff, uh, which basically I, after my first year in Argentina, I went back to India to my office and they were fairly impressed with, oh, this guy can do transparencies as if that was something, I mean, uh, superstar sort of a thing. So I said, yeah, fine. Uh, and they said, can you go and train people in the other countries in the area? I said, yeah, not a problem. And uh, would that be Spanish or any other language? So I was trying to be cocky, but they said, no, no, Spanish is going to be fine. So then started the trip with, I mean, I have been to countries that completely unheard of. Countries like Guyana, Suriname. And obviously your typical Guatemala, Ecuador and uh, Dominican Republic and Paraguay and Uruguay and all those things. Did that for about two years. And uh, then I 97, I got married back in India. So a bit of stability, came back to India, stayed in India for two years. That time I was based out of India, but handling Central America and Caribbean. Oh, important stuff. I moved to sales at that point. So finally realizing my long-term objective of selling the Tata products rather than servicing them. So, and my first, I would say my customer was Honduras. So the guy came in and so I went to Honduras first and basically looked at what was there. If India, you consider poor, I mean, Honduras was in shambles at that point in time. And he was trying to sell, a distributor there was trying to sell some Tata trucks, military grade to the Honduran army. So he took me to the army barracks and all those things. And basically I realized that, listen, I mean, this was seriously a poor place. I came back after my trip. The guy comes to India to, because there was some sort of a World Bank aid to Honduran army to buy some army trucks. So this guy comes to India and then basically my boss says, oh, I just found out that we are the only option. So initially we had thought that we'll be selling the each truck for about seventeen or thousand dollars. The guy, my boss goes, you sell anything below $25,000, don't show me your face. I was like, I mean, this is a fucking criminal, you know. But then, I mean, I was like, uh, hola, senor, 
tal and all the rest of it. Let's go and eat and this and that. And uh, the guy goes, okay, so have you spoken to your boss about the 100 trucks that we spoke of? I said, yeah, I've spoken to it. Uh, to him and we are going to be going to the plant to have a look at uh, all the trucks being made and whatnot. The guy said, no, no, no. Have you spoken about the pricing? I said, yeah, I've spoken about the pricing. So you know what we can pay. I said, I, yeah, I mean, I know what you can pay, but I also know at what price I can sell you at. It's about $24,000. The guy goes, no for the sale. And I was like, no, no, I totally understand what you're saying, but unfortunately can't help it because that's what my mandate is uh cut a long story short the guy bought the trucks for twenty two thousand dollars my boss goes well done you and i was feeling like i mean that was the first sale that i had ever done in my life and i feel like i was cheating the guy and basically because i had seen the conditions there and whatnot but then soon you realize that listen i mean the guy told you seventeen thousand dollars he could have afforded twenty seven thousand dollars as well and all the rest of it so after the honduras sales then basically i was uh, that was one incident and then basically i went to costa rica and guatemala and ecuador pulled similar sort of uh, stunts ecuador important stuff i land in ecuador and the guy basically comes and picks me up from the airport and there are three pajeros coming you know black color pajeros two black and the middle one red and all of a sudden these basically guards get out of the first uh, of the first and the last one and i senor beneath and i say yes and i'm like what the fuck have i done i mean who are these guys <laughs> and then he goes uh, uh senor malo está en el otro auto i go who senior malo and then i realized that distributor whom i was supposed to meet his name was marcos malo so marcos malo basically comes out of the car i mean uh, black goggles and stuff like that i mean complete uh, as you see in los narcos you know uh, mm-hmm. which i i saw probably i think year before last the the entire series so the guy takes me in his car and he says oh Today is a Sunday, so we don't work here. This is typical South America. And I said, yeah, no, I understand. So he said, we are going for a barbecue. So I say, okay, where we are going to a barbecue for? He said, oh, we are going to my father-in-law's place. So he takes me to his father-in-law's so-called ranch. And believe you me, I had never seen a Ferrari in my life before that. There were at least 30 such Ferraris and all that stuff inside the bloody thing and there were guard dogs and stuff like that and cameras uh, all, all at, at, the, at the entrance of the ranch so i get in there we are basically eating food and basically exchanging notes where have you been what have you done and then everybody uh, starts clapping and and everybody gets up because another chap walks in who happens to be marcos's brother-in-law and he has been released two days back by the, I think, FRA guys he, because he was abducted. And they oh, ended no. up paying some money for him to get him back. And it was actually the barbecue for welcoming him. And I just happened to be there. And this guy basically then started giving me a story. And I was thinking, what the heck have I signed in for? I mean, where that's have great. I landed? That's, you know? that's great. That's great. Okay. I, 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 need, I need to interrupt. We're 11 minutes in yeah, and sure. we haven't gotten to anything post-ins yet. So, so you, oh, you had something, like you had, you had a, a almost 
movie-ish type experience pre-INSEAD, going going all over Latin America and seeing this stuff. What did you do after INSEAD? Oh, let me start with when I came to INSEAD. Because when okay. I came to INSEAD, having had all this movie sort of experience, I thought I was a goddamn movie star. So I came in thinking that, listen, I know everything. I've seen the world, this, that, and the bloody P1 results come in. And I was not sure how to goddamn read the results because I was thinking that I, I was so confident that I've done so well, you know, at 1.9. I was thinking, who the hell got one? I mean, how is it that I only got a 1.9? That's when I realized that it was a 4.5, which was a better grade than a 1.9, <laughs> you know. I think that, that's when the penny dropped. And in the meanwhile, I think during the during the first year at NCAT, uh, there was this... Uh, 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 I think there was uh, something called a BDE, Bureau de Eleves, uh, a student union. I just basically uh, became the president of that by choice, but not knowing what I was getting into. And I think the only perk I had from INSEAD was having an office uh, within the, where those uh, cubicles were there from where Nabil and you used to do all the, all the logouts. There I had an office. So and I'm, so the office used to be really warm and everything compared to my home. So I'd, one day I was sleeping in the office in the night. And basically, I think uh, the, the cleaning lady came in in the morning, opened the door and basically saw me and howled. So I howled louder than her in terms of, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. And this and that. So everybody was sorry about this thing. Okay. Now, coming to the real stuff, after INSEAD, uh, I mean, when I came to INSEAD, I also wanted to basically do investment banking or, or basically be a consultant. But then I heard a few people talking about, oh, I want to get into PE. I had no bloody clue what PE meant at that point in time. I mean, even now, I'm, I'm not all that great at understanding it. Uh, but uh, given that I had already put in 12, 13 years in industry and all the rest of it, got up to the final round of McKinsey, did not get into the... Uh, into the did not get the offer. So there was this interesting company called Chep that came in and they made a presentation and I very reluctantly went for that presentation, but I heard that they rent out wooden pallets all over the world and they're a $5 billion company. And I was like, I mean, there's something fishy about this company. You cannot rent out a wooden piece of, uh, a wooden piece of pallet and make money out of it. And they said, no, no, we are there in these many countries and whatnot. One thing led to the other, got the job offer, and my first posting was the UK. That's how I landed in the UK in 2003. So I was one of the lucky ones uh, probably who had a job at that time or the ones who were looking for a job uh, and got the job, uh, I think, about a month into P5. So P5 was a very relaxed month for me uh, that way because I knew that I had something and whatnot. So landed up here in the UK and uh, that was that basically, joined CHEP. They had something called a Brambles Leadership Program whereby you did a rotational thing for three months in each department and whatnot. And finally, but because I wanted to do, do sales since my undergrad, I obviously joined sales here as well. So did uh, about five years with them in Europe. Spent about a year in uh, Spain, 
but still having the family back in the UK. So did exactly 52 weeks of London, Madrid, Madrid, London. I mean, there came a point in time where basically you enter any of the airports, either London or Madrid, and you know why the smell that what is being cooked by the restaurant and the LC and the landlord was that bad. So after uh, that was my second year with CHEP. Uh, I think it was 2004. And so 2005, I basically got finally stationed in, in the UK and was looking after the European key accounts. And... Uh, me being me, I always used to keep basically pestering the board that, listen, India is a great place. You should uh, invest something and whatnot. And they used to say, yeah, we are looking at it and never anything uh, more substantive than that. Uh, finally, I think in 2008, uh, beginning about March, April time, my uh, president calls me and says, uh, you're going to India. I said, no, I'm not going to India because I already had my vacation. Because I didn't absolutely understand what he was talking about. No, 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 because you always kept saying that we should do something in India. Now we have decided to do something and go and set up the business. So And, and, and they had been doing nothing before. You, you, you were the guy that, that was going to start all this stuff up. They were doing something in the background, which I realized that McKinsey was hired to basically understand the market and all that. But this was all post facto after I had accepted the job offer. So, and in January of 2008, my second kid, my son was uh, born and my wife was uh, on her maternity leave and everything. So when the job was, offer was made, I was super happy, but I was super scared as well as to how the heck I'm going to basically break this news up once I get home. But uh, yes, all that got settled. I finally accepted the job and landed up in India to set up the pallet business for them. So... There was another guy from the UK who went as the president of the Indian business. And I went in as basically the director who's going to be setting up the parent business in India. First three years, a uh, huge success for CHEP uh, because, I mean, there was no concept of hiring a pallet uh, in India. I mean, there was no concept of having a pallet in India to start with because it was typically a go-down culture and uh, it wasn't a warehouse uh, sort of stuff. But from now, from then to now, I think India has gone by leaps and bounds with respect to modernization of supply chain and the warehouses and this and that and whatnot. And we, we, unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time. But this—this this is a—I've never even heard of this business before. So, what's the use case for for renting a pallet instead of just buying a bunch of pallets? That 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 that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, if you were to buy a pallet, you can only use it once. Or if you were to basically put your goods—if you are Nestle—you bought a pallet, you did your Nescafe, and basically put the cartons on the pallet, and the pallet goes to Walmart. What happens to that pallet then? Oh, even, I see. I even see. if it was $5. And the, the way the business makes money is, it's a $10 pallet. I give it to you, Mr. Nestle. You pay me a rent for that pallet till such time that you're using it. This pallet then goes to a third-party logistics partner, let's say DHL, into their warehouse. So DHL pays me the rent for the time that they're using the pallet. Then DHL transfers this pallet to the Walmart store. Walmart starts paying the rent and eventually the pallet will come back to CHEP. But every time that the entity changes, I, CHEP is going to charge 
an additional three dollars for that. Because if it so, were to be your so own pallet, going, that, 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 that makes sense. I, I, I didn't think of the fact that pallet yeah. actually moves around. Um, what, what was India doing before you guys arrived? Were they not using pallets, or were they just doing kind of you know throwing them away when they? No, because everybody used to have. Most of the people were not using pallets, except for the big factories. But even in the big factories, the most unorganized part was having four carpenters sitting in there and basically doing your own pallets. And if something breaks, something breaks. But mm. when India was modernizing with respect to putting up high warehouses, uh, I mean, high ceiling warehouses with racking and everything, you can't afford to have a pallet that is going to break on, let's say, uh, ground plus eight level. And from 11.5 meter height, all the Nescafe bottles falling on somebody else and people dying. So they were looking for quality pallets. This is the time when Chep comes in and basically we go and start saying, rather than buying the pallet, you pay me a rupee a day. And rupee a day at that point in time was, I think, 0. 0.005 uh, cents to a dollar. And everybody was, oh, this is perfect. We don't need to invest. Somebody else is going to do it on our behalf and all the rest of it. So 2008 to 2011, I did that. Uh, business was doing great, but it was then time to hand over the keys to the local team uh, and come back to the UK. And I was like, listen, I've gone to these Guyana and Suriname and sold the Tata trucks uh, as if the, as a, as a, semi-Mercedes because Tata had a uh, tie-up with Mercedes when they started and they, the shape still looked the same while the quality and the other things might not be. Uh, and then I've come to India and basically tried to rent out wooden pieces, which when there was no market, probably it was time for me to do something. So I decided to basically leave Chep at that point in time uh, before coming to the UK and go on my own. So started a company called Fonti, uh, thanks to Fontainebleau, and uh, didn't want to write Vineet Logistics or anything of that sort. And so for a want of a better name, uh, started with Fonti. It's called Fonti Supply Chain Solutions. And we are still in the supply chain industry, but rather than being a pallet pooling company, which Chef was, we are an equipment pooling company. So the Equip material handling equipment which is used in the warehouses to move these pallets to put them on the racks and to get them down is what like we forklifts and, and and carriers and things like that yes okay. yes yes so we buy the uh, machines in Europe take them to India and we refurbish them and basically place them with customers like again the likes of Nestle and Amazon and Procter and Gamble and people like these who run modern warehouses in the country. So that's what I'm doing and uh, keep traveling to India at least eight to ten times in a year. My wife travels about six to seven times in a year. Uh, by the way, my wife and I jointly run the, uh, this business. Uh, initially, it was oh, only me. Oh boy, so mixing <laughs> business and uh, how, how's, what's that like? Very interesting, very interesting because, I mean, when, I think I'll, I'll start with the positive. There are a few parts that I don't interfere into what she does and she doesn't interfere into, or at least I assume that she doesn't interfere into what I do. So 
you and if it's your own thing, then then you are you you can have a peace of mind that somebody is looking after it, whom you can completely depend on, and there you are not going to be shortchanged and stuff like that. That's the most positive part. And given that sort of person that I am, I'm always like very macro in terms of if the numbers are looking right, it's good enough for me. I never get into uh, the minute details. And my wife is completely different. She'd been a consultant with IBM and Siemens and 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 uh, KPMG. And that's what her job was. I mean, always look at the details. And she gets into details of things. So she runs operations. I run the procurement and the sales function. So that way we kind of complement each other. Uh, but yes, I have had tips. We have had tips about certain things, certain people who should be in the company, who should not be in the company, and how we should run it. And it finally boils down to, okay, I mean, only one final say can be there, which I assume I have, but many a time that is not the case. But you, you I mean, you learn to live with it and you... Uh, that that was a very enough. diplomatic. That was a very diplomatic answer to that question. Bravo. Uh, the, the the it sounds like the business you chose was almost perfectly complementary to what you're doing before. That you were competing with your former employer. You're able to you're able to go after the same customers, probably some of the same people you were talking to with with your yes. former job. Yeah. Was was that a plan you had? You know, X years before you left Chepper, or was that did you just leave and then kind of stumble upon that idea? I kind of stumbled upon that idea because when I left Chep, it actually was me suing Chep and Chep suing me. So it wasn't a very oh you oh you sued each other. Yes, yes, yes. Ooh, ooh, that's this sounds this sounds like a story. Yeah, because I mean the president who was there that I told you who went as the president because I used to think that I'm getting the bread for uh, for the business because mine was the only part of the business that was absolutely making any money. So kind of got into my head and I used to think, I mean, this guy doesn't know anything and all the rest of it. So I was out there in the field trying to develop the business. But at the end of the day, I mean, the president was the president and I was supposedly reporting into him. So he kind of took an offense to that and whatnot. And uh, things did not, uh, in the end, they were not going all that well between the two of us. And I always thought that, listen, I mean, the organization sees that I'm the, I'm the, I'm the uh, man in shining, uh, knight in shining armor who's basically getting the money, but uh, did not realize how deep the politics run. Uh, so it, it came to a point uh, that the guy said, uh, listen, uh, uh, he sent the HR guy with the lawyer of the company that uh, why don't uh, you've got three hours and, and this is India that you've got three hours with you and why don't you pack your stuff and all the rest of it and uh, and we'll let you know uh, in a few days what's happening. This is a surprise. And I had just at that point in time cracked the Walmart deal. And I was thinking, what's going on? So, and this was right before I think my tenure was to end in Chep, India and I was to come back to the UK. That's when I basically spoke to a lawyer here. I said, this and this has happened, and the lawyer said this is uh, this doesn't sound right. And there was a very uh, the term that she used was constructive dismissal. So I said, yeah, I mean, whatever that means, I want to sue the bastard. I mean, those were my words. And when I was going with my box out, so my law, 
what I did was when they were leaving, there was this marketing guy, okay, who used to be always basically running after the president in terms of, sir, can we do this? Sir, can we do that? And so the lawyer, this marketing guy and the other chap basically came up to the door to, to basically to ensure that I was getting into the left and not doing anything untoward, so to say. So I told the marketing guy, tell the bastard that I'm coming after him, irrespective of where he is. <laughs> so my lawyer, the next day, my lawyer basically sues them here. And the very next day, the lawyer gives me a call back in India. It was a UK lawyer calling me in India, I think at about three in the morning, saying, I've just heard from the, uh, from the chap lawyer. Did anything happen? I said, what do you mean did anything happen? When you were leaving? I said, no. Uh, she said, no, you said something and they have to, oh, and the president and all these staff have been advised to take the police protection. And I said, for what? And they said, no, 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 because I think you threatened to kill them or something. <laughs> I, like, I mean, this is really bizarre. I, I couldn't your, believe your, it. Your Latin American experience came back to, uh, to haunt you. No, but, you. Uh, yeah, but, but this is, I mean, super. And I was like, I mean, I didn't know what to say, but mm -hmm. then because of the yeah, because of suing and counter suing, initially I had sued sued them for a lot of money. Finally, I ended up accepting whatever they offered me, which was basically three months salary and end off. And so that's when I decided that listen, I'm going to get into the same pallet business and screw their happiness. But then, once the papers came in for me to sign there was a non-compete clause there, obviously, mm. that I couldn't mm. have got into that business for the next one and a half years. So machines happened by chance because otherwise I would have gone in with the pallet business. But then really happy that I started with the machines because that's a much better business than the pallet business. That's that, that's a wonderful story and a wonderful way to end this. We're, we're way over time, uh, but this, this has been super interesting. Um, thanks, thanks so so much for for spending the time and sharing sharing these stories. I, I really enjoyed it. Cheers, Joe. Absolutely Thank brilliant you. talking about it. Thank you. <laughs>